Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to see a lot of you live, and uh, I invite uh, those of you who are not with us to enjoy this worship service, as Adam already has, and to enter into the word of truth that uh, comes from the Scripture, which is what we're about to do right now. One of the things I've enjoyed about this series, and I'm enjoying this series a lot, um, is that I get to show pictures. I don't show pictures very much. And some of you actually really like the pictures because you think I'm hard to follow. And at least with pictures, you feel like you can understand a little bit. And I've got some pictures this morning, but I got to tell you this. I'm looking forward to the later chapters where I can bring in some more pictures. Like, yeah, like pictures of dragons and bears and all kinds of beasts and stuff like that. That's going to be some great pictures. Um, But for today, we're going to start out with some really basic pictures. And the first picture I have for you is actually kind of like a drawing. Now, the screen kind of cuts off part of this, so you might not be able to see what it is. But let me tell you what it is. It's a proposed foundation for a garage. Now, what you may be able to see, it's kind of cut off on the outside edges, is those those L's, let's call them, those right angles, top, bottom, around, those are stakes in the ground. And those stakes in the ground, if you can go back to that slide again, those stakes in the ground actually are used to stretch lines between each point of the square. And the measurement between the top and the bottom should be perfect a perfect match to the top and the bottom of the other side of the square. And if you do that properly, then you actually know that your corners are a perfect cornerstone. You see the number 10, which represents 10 feet. So you take that line, and if you got a proper square foundation, that line is exactly 10 feet on every corner. That is the principle of cornerstones or foundations. And it's incredibly important to building. Anybody who builds houses knows that. It's also, shall we call, the foundation 
of amazing architecture in Rome and in ancient Greece. This next picture shows you a slide of what we think Pergama probably looked like many, many years ago. You can see the the facade or the opening of the city right there in front like a portico. You can see over to the left top of that entrance portico what appears to be a stadium. There's ruins of that stadium still in existence. You can see way over to the left buildings that appear to be like temple structures. It was a magnificent city. And one of the reasons it was so beautiful is because they understood proper architecture. They understood what a foundation, a square foundation, really meant. When you think about that city, I want to apply the notion of truth that is demonstrated in architecture to this passage. First of all, let's say something about the place. You saw the beauty of the place, but what you wouldn't know unless you researched was that Pergamum never rose to the level economically of Ephesus or Smyrna, the churches we've talked about previously. It never was that kind of commercial hub. It was a great city, but it was great for other reasons. What it was great for was that it was known as an intellectual capital and a religious capital in Asia. Many temples, more than most cities, and lots of things to study. If you'd lived in Pergama, you would have lived in the shadow of a library that was second only in size to the library of Alexandria in Egypt. As a matter of fact, Pergamos Library contained 200,000 parchment rolls, which would be equivalent to our books today, 200,000 volumes. As a matter of fact, the word parchment, the rolls that things were written on, it's derived from the word pergama. What's interesting about parchment and pergama is this. This city was rivaling Alexandria in terms of knowledge and a huge library. And the officials of Pergama recruited Aristophanes, who was the librarian and chief scholar in Alexandria, to come oversee their library and their intellectual center. What's interesting is that back then they took non-compete clauses very seriously. So the king of Egypt at the time, Ptolemy, heard about this, and he put Aristophanes in prison so he couldn't go to Pergamon. Furthermore, Egypt placed an embargo on papyra, which is, before Pergamon, the way almost all documents were recorded. So Pergamon said, we don't have your librarian, but we can make our own way to write, and parchment was discovered. Of course, it ends up eclipsed eclipsing papyra in terms of a mechanism for recording things. So you have a very interesting city, not a center for commerce, but a center for intellectual learning and religion. So what does the angel 
to the church of Pergama, call Pergama. I want to divide this small section up into three parts. First part, Satan's throne is their location. Second part, false teaching is their problem. Third part, potentially they have a reward. So first, this is Satan's throne. I suppose the angel could have said that to any number of cities in Rome at the time. He could have said that because he believed that Satan ruled. But perhaps the reason he said it is because they were really serious about their polytheism, their multiple gods. As a matter of fact, they were so serious about polytheism that you better toe the mark. We've got this reference to a man called Antipas, who apparently was a martyr in that city. And it's very likely that he was a martyr in that city because he refused to name Caesar as Lord. That sounds familiar if you know anything about the New Testament. But what's interesting about that familiar phrase, Caesar is Lord, is that any number of people in a polytheistic society would say, I got my favorite Lord. I got my favorite God. But I'm going to worship these other ones too. What harm is there in that? Or if you were prosecuting Antipas, you might say to him, Antipas, come on, just modify your views here. I know you think Jesus is Lord. That's all well and good. But just give a little deference to Caesar. That's all it takes. Just call him Lord too. Antipas and other martyrs refused to do that. I will not call anyone Lord except Jesus Christ. That apparently is what the angel spoke to Pergama. You live in Satan's throne room. I get it. The second thing about this passage is that false teaching is their problem. Apparently, they not only allowed false teachers or people who believed false things to be in their congregation, that wouldn't have been that big a deal. We always have people who believe false teachings. What seems to be the case is they accommodated false teachers and let them have a platform to teach their falsehood. That was the really important distinction. The angel to the church in Pergamos said, you have a problem with false teachers. Do you remember those of you who were here when we talked about the church at Ephesus? You might say that the church of Ephesus had a problem. They had truth without love or their first love. Pergamum seems to have the opposite problem. Love 
without truth. Everything's okay. Have what doctrine you want. Involve yourself in anything, including sexual immorality. It's okay. Truth doesn't really matter that much. One of the ways we uh, understand that this may have been the problem is a description that the writer gives when he names the problem. He, he gives us or reminds us of the story of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he would make declarations. And on one occasion, a king, Balak, saw the people of Israel coming through his land, and he was threatened by them. And he didn't want him to be there. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll call Balaam the prophet, and I'll ask him to curse those people. So Balaam finally came after being persuaded to come, even though he heard from an angel that he shouldn't go. Anyway, he goes with Balak, and he stands on a cliff overlooking this whole section where the people of God are passing through. And he says to Balak, okay, I'm going to say something, but I got to tell you, whatever I say is what the Lord puts in my mouth. I can't promise you what's coming out. So he raises his hand to supposedly curse the people of God, and blessings come out of his mouth. The word of the Lord was in his mouth. Balak is just incensed. He said, didn't I pay you big bucks to come here and curse these people? Try it again. He raises his hand and he blesses them again. It's a great story. It's just funny if you read it. Go back and take a look at it in the book of Numbers. Before it's all over, though, Balaam can't produce a curse. There's an implication in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verse 16, and then also in the book of Revelation, that Balaam was instrumental in showing Balak another way to curse the people. You know what it was? They intermarried and had sexual relationships with the Moabites. Now, you might say, what's wrong with that? Don't be racist, Bob. No, that's not the point. It's not about intermarriage with other races or intermarriage with other people groups. It's allowing the people of Moab to entice you or seduce you to worship idols. It wasn't just about sexuality. It was about idolatry. So the people of God, who couldn't be cursed by Balaam, are enticed by the Moabites to have multiple idols along with God. And that is their destruction. The angel to the church of Pergamos said, that's wrong. There's a group among you called the Nicolaitans, and he likens them to Balaam and that episode and he basically says, that's wrong. You shouldn't follow what is not true. And furthermore, I'm coming. I'm coming with a sword. Apparently a sword implying the sword of the Lord, the word of the Lord. I'm coming with the truth. And when I come, we're reminded of the words of Isaiah. When Isaiah said, God made my mouth like a sharp sword when I spoke the truth. Or we're reminded of passages like in Ephesians 
that we are to arm ourselves with the armament of God along with the sword of the Lord, which is the word of the God, word of God in the spirit. And we're reminded of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, the angel said, I'm coming and I'm going to make it clear who's on the wrong side. So first, their location is Satan's throne. Second, their problem is false teaching. And third, there's potentially a reward in their future. As a matter of fact, it's described with this metaphorical picture, right? If you follow me, if you don't stray with other gods, if you actually follow the truth, there's a reward for you, hidden manna. Of course, manna refers to the Old Testament episode where God, again, in the book of Numbers, pours out manna from heaven for the people of God in the desert to give them sustenance. And Jesus seems to imply that he is the word of God, the bread of life, the manna from heaven. In other words, if you follow the truth the way I suggest you follow the truth, you will receive the bread of life which gives you eternal life. And furthermore, if you follow the truth, I'll give you a white stone. That's an interesting image because a white stone meant a lot of things in ancient culture. One thing it meant is in courtrooms, when someone was acquitted of a crime, the judge would hand the person who had accepted or received the acquittal a white stone. This means you're absolved. Another story about the white stone in ancient times is that at the end of a race or some kind of contest, if you won, you got a white stone. There's yet another image that's often used of a white stone, and this one seems to relate even more to what is being described by the angel to the church at Pergamon. If you wanted to enter an important feast, you were given a white stone kind of like your ticket with your name etched on it, Bob. So let me make this personal. I need a white stone. I need an acquittal because I'm thoroughly sinful. I need a white stone with my name on it that says you are forgiven and you're loved by God. And the pathway to that white stone is to follow the truth from the Word of God. So let me make application from this short passage. We live in a world, I think, where it is argued that there is really no such thing as absolute truth. You follow simply what's true for you. And as long as you follow what's true for you and you're strong in following your own convictions, you'll be okay. 
because there's really no absolute truth. Actually, that's a really ancient kind of approach to truth. Um, really well represented among some Greek philosophers called sophists. The sophist basically said this, and it's been repeated over and over again. It, it, it's a little mantra that goes something like this. First of all, truth doesn't exist. Absolute truth. It, truth doesn't exist. Second, if truth did exist, we couldn't understand it. It's incomprehensible. And if truth did exist, and by chance we could understand it, we couldn't even express it because it's beyond our comprehension and ability to express. So why worry about it? There is no such thing as truth or absolute truth. In my humble opinion, the greatest contribution of Western philosophy from Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and beyond was the undermining of that little group of words. In effect, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle said that statement itself is self-referentially false. Why? Because you've just made a truth claim for crying out loud. Or to put it another way, you've laid your foundation and you want me to build on it. Furthermore, it's quite possible, this could be argued, that you can't even have a constructive dialogue unless you believe in some form of truth. Communication is virtually impossible without it. Even if your assumptions concerning truth are wrong, you begin an argument based on certain assumptions that you believe to be true. What happens when absolute truth is dismissed? What happens is we're left with the art of persuasion, the ability to convince your opponent, and whatever you can do to manipulate the so-called truth in order to get your way. That's what you're left with when you have no absolute truth. Manipulation of so-called facts. Can I get away with this? Just a little comic relief. It's kind of beginning to sound like what happens every four years in our country with the Democrat and the National Republican National Convention. Yeah, that, that's where truth goes to be killed <laughs> because it's rhetoric. And every politician who's worth his salt manipulates the truth in order to gain a particular end, it seems. Call me a cynic, but it seems to be true. So here are some essential truths that you have to make a choice about if you're going to follow Christ. One essential truth from the Scripture is that God exists. Or you can choose the opposite. God does not. An essential truth, there is one God. Or there are multiple gods. You can't have it both ways.
Essential truth number three. God is creator and sustainer of this universe. Or he's not. The whole blessed thing is random chance. Your choice. Another essential truth. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. Or he was not. Let me pause to reemphasize what Paul emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to me, my friends, he says. If Jesus was not God in the flesh, and if Jesus did not die and was resurrected in the body, your faith is futile. You are pathetic. Just, these are not his words, just shut up already. Stop babbling on. The foundation of our faith is the dual natures of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Believe it or not. It's likely, we don't know for sure, that some or all of these essential truths taught in Scripture were being compromised in Pergamum. We're not sure all of them or which ones, but it's very likely that some of these were the problem. And the angel, in effect, says, truth concerning God in Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of your life. It's the foundation of your existence. Don't drift from it. Now, having said that and gotten really big and pontificating about absolute truth, let me step back a minute. Here's what I want to say. In spite of the fact that I believe in absolute truth, and I do with all my heart, in spite of that, because I'm a sinful creature just like you, I have a dilemma on my hands. Here's the dilemma. I can take essential, absolute truth and construct arguments out of faulty logic and create things that are not absolute truth. Furthermore, I can take the absolute truth of the Word of God, which I rest my life on, and through sloppy interpretation, make conclusions concerning absolute truth that are just not intended by the Word of God. And third, I might create what I consider to be absolute truths and hang on to them tenaciously out of fear. Because I'm afraid that if I let this one go, it means the whole house of cards is going to fall. That's a dilemma. And my friends, we've got to admit in the history of the church, we've done that over and over again. We've created things we call absolute truth that are not. And frequently we've had to look back and repent of them. 
That's a dilemma. Truth exists, but absolute truth claims can be contorted from the original absolute truth. When I think of this dilemma, it seems to me that there are two equal and opposite errors. The first error is what I've already mentioned, the belief that it is impossible to find absolute truth. That's a horrible error. It might be difficult to find truth, but it exists. It might be hard to understand the truth when you find it, but it exists. And it might be hard to accept the truth when you're confronted by it, but it exists. So we can't dismiss it. That's one error. The second error is what I alluded to, believing that all our truth claims are absolute truth. We make mistakes in application, and we're often arrogant and antagonistic in our proclamation of truth claims. So what's the solution? This, I promise, is the shortest part of my sermon. What's the solution to the dilemma? We know absolute truth exists, but we have these problems. What's the solution? Well, the first is to pursue the truth. Be absolutely persistent in finding it. Don't give up the search, even when it's difficult. Don't give up the search, even when you make the wrong application. Don't give up the search, even though you're sinful. Pursue the truth. It's there. If the truth is not there, God is not there. Pursue it. Second, when you find it, You must submit to it. This is not an intellectual exercise, my friends. The angel to the church of Pergamum might have said, this is your life. Pursue truth, even at the point of dividing people up. Pursue truth. It's that important. And when you come upon the truth, submit to it. Brian sang just a few moments ago a song, an old song, All to Jesus I Surrender. All to Him I Freely Give. I want to use that song as a reminder of something. In the Christian tradition, truth is not just some objective thing out there that you can calculate an answer to. Truth is relational. So the difference between Socrates and Plato and Aristotle in the Western philosophical tradition, which I have incredible appreciation for, Jesus says something different and takes it to a new level. 
He says, I am the truth. And in order to know the truth, you must be in relationship with me. To follow the truth means to follow me. So we must submit to the truth, which is in effect to submit to God in Jesus Christ. And third, we must be humble in our pursuit of the truth and our proclamation of the truth. We must be humble because let's admit something. We'll never completely understand it. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Doesn't mean that there's elements that are absolutely true that we can know, but we'll never completely understand it. So we need to be humble about that. And the final thing is we need to apply the truth that we know with love. We don't want to be the church at Ephesus. We don't want to be the church at Pergamum. We want to be the church that pursues passionately the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the way, truth, and the light. And we want to proclaim it with love. You know what truth without love is? It's like a hammer. It smashes things to smithereens. And truth with love is like a surgeon's knife that cuts in order to heal. We want to be the latter. Sometimes I just say something about us. And I want to pause to say something about us. I've said it before. I love this place for a lot of reasons. I love it for the diversity of opinions. I love it for the passion and worship. But I also love it because we take truth seriously. We pursue it passionately. One of our slogans is we don't have all the answers, but we refuse to ignore the difficult questions. We continue to pursue truth. Thank God for that. Thank God for us. So it's self-congratulating. I'm sorry, but I couldn't help it. Let's continue to pursue the truth, but let's apply it in love. Because, really simply put, that's what Jesus did. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you when it's hard to understand because it challenges us to continue. We thank you when it's hard to accept because we realize that we're wrong. We're confronted by the truth and we've got to submit to it. But we thank you that the carrier of truth
is our crucified Lord. Not a soldier who decapitates those who don't believe. Not a preacher who screams and shouts about cultural sins and its wickedness. But a crucified, risen Lord that says to all of us, I'm the way, the truth, the life. And I love you. And I proved it on the cross. And I invite you to follow me. Give us the grace to follow this week, Lord. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.